once again, Captain Hindsight comes to this House and attacks the government for doing exactly what he urged us to do 18 months ago. Lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Uh, uh, word of warning. Word of warning, Prime Minister. That's not going to work with the police. <laughs> Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Connor Matchett and I'm the deputy political editor at the paper. With me this week is Alistair Grant, our political editor, and also Alex Brown, who's our Westminster correspondent uh, down in London, back from sick leave after a nasty bout of COVID. How are we all doing? Alex, you feeling better? I am 30, flirty and thriving. As we all know from your column in the As SOS. As we all know from my column. Oh my, I mean, can we, talk, can we talk about some of the comments on my column for the weekend? I feel like that's a fun <laughs> thing to talk about on a podcast. Have you seen this, Alistair? Uh, I saw your tweets about it, yeah. Oh my God. This guy, I, I, wrote, we, we, I you know, wrote a column about the UK being, if not fundamentally corrupt, then like the democracy is just not working. Like the systems, balances and checks are not there. And one of the comments was like, I worry about his mental health. He can't maintain a relationship. Um, he's got his self-confessed feelings of inadequacy. I hope for everyone's sake, like his a hatred of Boris Johnson only extends to words. I was essentially being accused of like planning a terror attack against the prime minister. <laughs> which I mean, which, on the record, I'm not currently doing. It's good to know. It's good to have that on the record. Yeah. I mean, the, but, you know, our, our commenters even on, on the Scotsman website are... I loved and loathed and equal. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, I'm delighted to be back. Don't really like my mental health being joked about, but, you know, buzzing to be back discussing politics and able to breathe properly. And, and also on the topic of A, being able to breathe properly and also the fact that it's Easter recess, we also discovered that Alex has a, has a small hobby and he's got an Easter treat for everyone at home listening. <laughs> So that was to hand because I was playing. Uh, I was trying to teach myself how to play the Super Mario theme yesterday on my table at my table, and I had the music up on my computer. That's not just uh, here for the show. I should clarify. It's beautiful. It was a beautiful moment. I hope you're slightly better than just. <laughs> you can see. Him, I can see in your eyes going. He's not really going to do it, is he? <laughs> <laughs> There's no coming back from that. Also, you know, Hot Crust Buns, the, the song that any wind instrument player is taught, you know, as they literally pick up the thing. Yeah, I mean, it's just easy enough to remember. I mean, I can remember that, Good King Wenceslas, and uh, some song, song I had to play for a, a gig I did once did. A gig? A show. It's not a gig, really. It's just <laughs> a gig. Yeah. When, we, when I was on tour, on the road with the boys, and I was playing jazz flute. Yeah, anyway. How's everyone else? <laughs> Such is the life of a Westminster correspondent. Yeah, that's the main character of today's podcast. <laughs> uh, let, let's let's move on from Alex's flute uh, and uh, in, <laughs> back into politics. Your honour. Um, and uh, there's it, it's it's Easter recess. It's Easter recess for both Holyrood and um, and Westminster, which means it's 
significantly quieter than normal. Um, however, there was a big story in, in the Sunday Times at the weekend. Alex, take us through it. Well, so the uh, Tory MP David Warburton was accused of multiple sexual harassment claims and photographed next to an upturned oven dish, uh, which appears to be laden with cocaine. Now, I am no expert on drug use or even uh, on photographs, but I feel like if I was going to take cocaine, I probably wouldn't pose with it. Like, as I know, I just feel like that's probably not, that's like a literal trail. There's a paper trail, there's evidence. When you can snort the evidence, it would be a particularly silly thing to do. And he's now been admitted to a psychiatric hospital with severe shock and stress, his wife says. Um, which, you know, I don't wish that on anyone. The accusations are incredibly serious. And I think, again, it shows that Westminster is not quite fit for purpose because the whips were told about this two weeks ago uh, by the staffers who've accused him. And they only were suspended the whip when the Sunday Times went to them with the story. So they have done, they have started the investigation and removed the whip from a sitting Conservative MP only when the media knew not when they, you know, they'd already been told what the allegations were. Um, and it's particularly gutting because, I mean, the allegations are that he, you know, he took one person home and put his hand on her thigh and was brushing her hair and she felt very uncomfortable. He just got naked in front of another one and said, don't let us have a cuddle and would send messages, that sort of thing. This, this is all alleged. Um, and it's just, and, and, and one didn't feel like she should come forward because the person responsible for HR is his wife, which is just a farcical system I don't know how anyone could think, you know, well, that's that's fine. And it's just another horrible, horrible thing in Westminster. And you just think how I just I just hope everyone I didn't want everyone to be OK. And we just we're reading the appalling allegations about someone again. Absolutely. And it, it it's it's just not the first time, is it, either that, you know, there's been less than adequate responses to accusations of improper behaviour among MPs. I mean, the SNP have their own issues with, 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 with certain members. But I'm just thinking off the top of my head, Charlie Elphick's another, another uh, MP who was subject to uh, allegations and all of that nonsense. I mean, do we think that something systematic needs to change about how these complaints are dealt with? Because there was a big issue with complaints during the hashtag MeToo stuff a few years ago, um, and it doesn't seem to have changed much. Yes, but also, and I, I, you know, I think we saw when Caroline Noakes claimed that Stanley Johnson, um, the Prime Minister's father, had touched her. She then said that MPs were being mean to her about her in the tea room, and there were being accusations of some sort of like Remainer, Ramona plot. Um, it is always the party first. Mark Field was suspended for his behaviour by the Conservative Party, but then Theresa May, I think, restored the whip because for a crucial vote. These are people who are serious politicians who you think, you have no, leadership starts from the top. And the Westminster has repeatedly chosen, uh, well, those Westminster have repeatedly chosen to, uh, if not ignore, but then um, delay dealing with these things for political benefits. Um, I mean, it also came out of the weekend. This is not just a conservative problem, uh, accusations like this. You know, two Labour staffers are asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement uh, and then after making sexual harassment claims. And you just think, <laughs> they're supposed to be the best of us. And I know and I know that if you're listening to this, you know, you will not be, There is. it's not like we can go, oh, well, it's really awful and this is going to fix it. Because 
historically, you know, repeatedly, politicians have failed to fix it. There, there seems to be, you know, there's, you know, there's bad people in every walk of life, but when it happens in politics, the response to it is always delayed because the party comes first. And until that stops, it's going to keep happening. Absolutely. And I was just re- reading um, some of the some of the reporting on it. I, I think you mentioned it when you were describing it, but um, the idea that the whips knew two weeks ago and did nothing about it seems particularly, you know, I, I just don't understand how, how anyone working for any political party would have any kind of confidence in in their complaints being taken seriously, if that's the approach. Yes. I mean, I know people who've had um, been sent lewd images or had threatening messages from MPs. Um, I mean, one of the most gutting things about working in Parliament is the amount of stories that we can't tell, right? Like, I have friends who have had MPs threaten them and send them late-night messages kind of entitled, you know, feeling entitled to their bodies. I know MPs who have uh, cheated on their partners with young staffers, and then been quite controlling uh, and threatening towards them. But people are scared to come forward and talk about it. And I don't, I don't, I don't know how you fix it, because there's no sign that it's going to get better. Um, it's, just a, it's just a very unpleasant place, really. How bad is the drug problem in Westminster from your experience, Alex? Um, I mean, I can get drugs very easily. Oh, oh you mean how bad, right? Okay. Um, I mean... Thing is, I mean, I've, I very rarely ever see it. I mean, I am, I am a profound bore and I really love politics and I like doing my job, but I don't go, uh, despite appearances and the flu, I'm not the party animal that would suggest. I, like I, go to, I go to the pub and have a few drinks, but I have no interest in living in Westminster. Uh, but I, I know people who have gone to the bars in Westminster, gone and done lines in the toilets and then gone back out and just had drinks. I know people who've just been past it over the counter in Strangers, which is the parliamentary bar. Where um, you know, mainly it's mainly for MPs, but we're allowed in there. Um, and it's just you know, people, you know, you, I've seen it at the table. I mean, it's, it doesn't happen a lot, but it's not. It's kind of just accepted that people take drugs. It's you know, it, it's it's kind of priced in. I so you don't you don't see you don't see it happening very often, but it is just I, it's just one of those things, isn't it? You know, lots of people do drugs, and also they don't know how to, how to say about it. Like the prime minister said, he'd never said he'd taken coke, and then he said, actually, I've never taken coke. Um, and then we have to pretend like he'd not already admitted taking coke. It's a pretty galling, you know, thing to hear. I think for a lot of people who, you know, some people's lives are ruined by a drug drugs conviction. You know, for something as minor as just possession of of, of marijuana. I mean, if if it's if it's that priced in, surely something should be there should be some level of consequences. And I think, yeah, arguably, the the thing that was so striking about the David Warburton story was that picture of him with the the alleged cocaine you know and, and the fact that it was so brazen and he was happy to have a picture taken seemingly with that in full sight i delete pictures where i think my forehead looks big i don't know why i would keep one if it looked like i had cocaine like i do you, like if you take a picture do you not like look at it first and go can i see it can i see what the picture's like i think i'd probably do that if i had and then i go am i go oh that looks a bit like i've got cocaine there should delete that one it's embarrassing so what what's the likely uh you know, process for this, Alex. Is it? Is it? Is he? Will he end up with a by election? You know, in in a, in a few months, do you think he'll he'll resign from from Parliament? Well, I mean, this is probably not. I'm going to okay, I'm going to go very local with you now. Uh, so it's Somerton and Froome is his seat. His majority is nineteen thousand. Uh, I went to school in Froome. I am from a small village nearby, despite my uh, broad Scottish accent. Um, 
And I think it could be, I think we could be facing Ed Davey photo op 3.0 because the Lib Dems held the seat for three terms uh, under David uh, David Heath, uh, who was like a farmer, so Tories could vote for him, right? And then uh, Warburton came in, more than 50% of the vote, uh, and that happened because it's quite so. Froome is very, very lefty. It's like it has like an independent market, independence for Froome, and is um, the like, the Greens popular there? And basically, people went after the coalition. I'm not going to be voting for the Liberal Democrats. But I think if there's a by election, I think we have seen lately that people are beginning to kind of look past the coalition. I think Brexit and maybe people like the Lib Dems a bit more, and we may be in a position where the people can go, well, I would like to get rid of the Conservative. And if they do, I mean, the Lib Dems are the only party that can win there. So it, it, it could be a very, very exciting by-election if that happens. But then there's a, but the, you know, there's a whole process for that. And it's whether the Conservatives, whether the recall petition happens. And of course, that's been investigation anyway. So at the moment, they're all allegations. Uh, there's not going to be a by-election until anything's proven. But if there is one, I think it could be very interesting because I really think it could, it, could make the, it could help the Lib Dems get a seat that I would think they would not have had a chance of winning uh, again, well, let, let's segue from from that into um, you know one thing that that Lib Dem Tory seats are, are often known for, which is nimbyism, not in my backyardism, and the upcoming energy strategy, which is due to I think come out is it next week or this week? This week it's been delayed so many times; it's hard to keep track of. Um, part of this in- includes apparently the idea that that Quasi Quarter and the business secretary wants to double onshore wind by 2030 and treble it um, by 2035, which would be a huge increase um, in the number of onshore wind turbines. Um, these are the ones that you'd see see on the hills rather than, than uh, as, as the name might suggest, on the sea. It's, it's one of uh, one of British politics' great, great things that, you know, as soon as a wind turbine goes up, usually um, everybody hates looking at it. Um, but they're desperate for renewable energy. They just don't want it near them. Um, and there was some interesting polling done um, on this that suggested that if someone within sight of a wind tar- turbine got heavily discounted or free energy, um, they'd be massively pro it. This is a big topic, Alistair, for Scotland in general. It, it's uh, energy is devolved to, to Westminster. Oil and gas and the future of oil and gas is a recurring, re- recurring theme in Scottish politics. It's an important moment, not just for the energy security of the country, but the, the the kind of understanding of where the UK government wants it to go to, to hit those net zero targets. Yeah, it is an important moment. I think the, I think I'm right in saying the energy strategy is due, we're expecting it on Thursday this week. So it's an energy strategy kind of focused on the idea of energy security and kind of a long-term strategy. Uh, and from the reporting over the weekend, it seems like it'll have kind of two main focuses, one on nuclear. So there's a lot of reports about um, the kind of long-term plans to massively increase nuclear. I think there were some suggestions that you know there could be six or seven by six or seven new sites by 2050. And then another focus on wind power, like you were saying. And I think most of that will be an offshore wind. That seems to be the preference for a lot of Tory MPs anyway. I think there's some suggestions that Boris Johnson favours a site in the Irish Sea for some kind of gigantic wind farm type thing. Um, but there will be, yeah, this running battle over onshore wind and the kind of communities that just don't want it there. If you're kind of expanding in any major way, where is it going to go? I think, I mean, the Tories obviously, I think in the past brought in this this kind of idea that you've got to, local communities have a say over this to some degree. 
um, which basically prevented a lot of a lot of this being being kind of built. Uh, I can't really see them moving that much away from that. Certainly in England, obviously planning decisions I think are slightly different in the rest of the UK. But certainly, you know, if, if we want to massively ramp up our kind of energy security, our energy independence, our homegrown energy, and we're focusing on renewables, then this is conversations we're going to have to have. And fracking as well will probably be be a kind of get a mention. Oil and gas, a lot of eyes in Scotland will be in what it says about that. It's obviously a huge issue up here, the extent to which new drilling can take place. And I think like you're, you were kind of hinting at there, I think there is going to be onshore, onshore wind. One of the things they might look at is incentives for local people. So there's stuff about maybe getting some of their bills covered. There could be kind of council tax incentives just to make it, you know, more palatable for local communities. So it will be a major moment. As you say, there's been much delayed. I think it's been a long time coming. Uh, we've got a similar plan from the SNP government, although obviously a lot of the a lot of the levers lie in Westminster when it comes to this kind of stuff. But their plan has been delayed now until the autumn. And I think part of the reason for that, they said, was because the UK government's plan, they hadn't seen it yet, essentially. So yeah, it'll be a major moment. And I think it's, it's such a key issue at the moment, considering the war in Ukraine, the impact that's having in the whole debate, it's completely changed the way we talk about this. It's changed the way we talk about oil and gas, to be honest. There's been a lot of new voices coming out and saying maybe we should be drilling more in the North Sea, just improve our own energy security in the long term. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see see where it goes. How much of this kind of shift to, you know, almost back towards the the policies of pre-COP26 of, you know, we need to use the oil and gas that we have that's on our shorelines. You know, we need to increase nuclear, something that, you know, the SNP in Scotland for for one are, are dead set against. Um, other opposition parties like the Greens are dead set against nuclear power. You know, it, it feels to me like we've shifted from a, we need to focus on the kind of classic renewable options, which was the pre-COP 26 or the, you know, the, the post-COP 26 to actually, you know, this, this malevolent power in the East means that we need to extract all this oil and gas. Do you think there's opportunity, opportunism or, or do we think that it's, you know, more of a, it's provided the, you know, political climate to be able to say what actually was always probably the view? Well, I think there are genuine concerns. And you look at, obviously, one of the debates that we have in the UK is that we're not as reliant on Russian gas, for example, than other parts of Europe, for example, Germany. Um, But we still have to feed into a global market. So changes in prices will affect us. And we also import, I mean, we saw recently, actually, with, I think they're called, what they called now, Offshore Energies UK, formerly Oil and Gas UK, uh, had a report that was released, I think it was last week, that showed that for the first time, the UK is importing most of its gas I think from Norway. Um, so we do have to get our gas from somewhere if we're not producing it ourselves. And if everyone else in Europe is also trying to get it from that, uh, that those sources, then we're going to have a lot of competition. So I think there are genuine concerns about energy security and ensuring we have that supply in the future. But you're right, there have always been voices, particularly in uh, maybe parts of the Conservative Party who wanted us to continue drilling in the North Sea because of the, the opportunities they saw there. And there's obviously a lot of people in the Northeast for whom it's you know, their livelihoods, northeast Aberdeen, very associated with oil and gas. It's been part of the, the huge success of the area. I think any moves away from it were a massive concern for people. We hear a lot from the SNP and the Greens about the just transition to renewable energy, where we don't hear so much about the concrete plans of that actually happening to the degree that would be necessary to save those jobs that are already involved in the North Sea sector. Um, so I think there are genuine concerns, but you're right, it does play into long-term trends. And I think even if we go down the route of 
more drilling, drilling in the North Sea, more kind of, you know, if fracking rears its head again, we do still have to keep in mind that both governments, uh, Scottish government, UK government are committed to net zero. You know, the UK government by 2050, Scottish government by 2045. And that's not going to go away. The climate change is not going to go away. It's still a massive issue that we have to pay heed to. So it's just balancing these things is going to be extremely tricky in the coming years. And I think one of the problems with nuclear energy, which Boris Johnson seems really keen on, is that, you know, I'm no expert in this, but I understand that it takes absolutely ages to build a nuclear power station. You know, it takes, you know, you're talking about a decade or something, you know, it's not something that is going to help at all in the short term. So it's fine for a long-term strategy, but we are going to have to, you know, have serious conversations about uh, future years that, you know, our energy mix is extremely complicated, essentially. On the nuclear point, I mean, Sizewell C, which is one of the uh, proposed um, nuclear power stations in, in, in Suffolk, actually, ironically quite close to where I used to cover when I worked down there. You know, that's expected to be commenced before 2024. Construction will take between nine and 12 years. Um, And, you know, that's been in the pipeline since 2012. So, you know, that's 2012 to 2036. So that's, you know, 24, 25 years to get a, a new nuclear power station in an area that already has a couple of uh, nuclear power stations, I think, <laughs> from from consultation stage to you know operational. Alex, I mean, you're you're from a, from a part of the world that classically does not like you know big wind turbines going up in their back in their backyard. That's also classically Tory 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 country. Do you think that something like this is you know, going to? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's like no, just checking what you said, Tory. Yeah, Tory country, country. Okay. country. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, it's these classically rural, more rural areas that are more well suited to onshore wind than, say, Manchester. Um, do you think that 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 shift, if there is a shift towards onshore wind, will hurt the Conservatives electorally, or do you think that people will actually comprehend the need for a shift towards renewables? So I can only speak like anecdotally, just from like the people I know, really. And I, I would be like, I think like, this is not, you know, polled or like any real <laughs> evidence, but I don't know anyone who would be against wind turbines now. I, I, I just don't know anyone who's no longer like, you know what, let's have more wind. Um, I know like, you know, grandparents would be, a, were a bit like, oh, it's a bit of an eyesore, but now I'll just, you know, talk about how clever it is. I remember, like, even, I think I, even, like, my dad, I think, may have maybe been, like, oh, you know, they kind of, like, it's on the land. I mean, he wasn't anti it, but now it's a, more, a lot more, like, why aren't we doing more? So I, I would be, like, if, you, if you're a conservative and you voted for a government that says how green it's going to be, and, you know, it's remembering that um, David Cameron used to brag how they were the greenest government ever, um, which then, when the coalition ended, they closed the Green Investment Bank, uh, Investment Fund thing. So... Uh, yeah, I just can't see anyone who's going to go, you know, like we're, we're all there now, right? Like everyone's pro-environment at this point, other than being a bit, you know, frack sympathetic or frack adjacent, who doesn't love wind? It's going to have really big implications, especially around oil and gas, Alistair, for the relations between the, the UK and the SNP government in Scotland. Because if, if, the, if the view is, let's open up all of these oil fields and get, get as much of it out as possible particularly with the Greens and coalition, that ain't going to end well in terms of intergovernmental relations. 
It's not. I mean, we've already seen tensions between the UK and Scottish government on this issue. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon is very clear, for example, with Campbell, the, the very controversial oil field that was in the news a few months ago in the run-up to COP26. You know, she eventually came out and was very clear that she didn't think it should go ahead. And I think I think it will cause tensions. I think one of the things that was interesting, actually, when uh, Offshore Energies UK, formerly Oil & Gas UK, had their report um, a week or so ago, and they had a press conference to kind of launch it. And one of the points they were making is how important political support is for the sector. And that's political support from both governments and, you know, across the parties. Uh, if people are going to have confidence to invest, I mean, that was one of the reasons that Campbell hit a stumbling block, essentially, because there was so much opposition in Scotland. And I think if you're a company seeking to invest in, in, a, in a new oil field, you know, you're looking, you're looking to invest for the long term. You want there to be security in terms of uh, having that support to maximize the gains you're going to get from that. And I think if there is massive political turmoil over these decisions, it puts companies off. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see to what extent oil and gas features in that report and the kind of knock-on effect that has for the debate in Scotland. Do you think we'll see more of a fission between, you know, maybe more traditional SNP voices? I mean, it's no surprise that uh, we heard Fergus Ewing last week in uh, in Parliament, I think at First Minister's questions, you know, standing up and launching what essentially was an attack on the on the SNP's energy policy. He is obviously a, a as close to a grandee as you get in in the backbenches of the SNP um, in Holyrood. That is, we'll probably see more of this, and and we've also noticed, I think, fair to say that the Conservatives as their conference in Aberdeen showed, have, have noticed a real weak spot for the SNP in the North East. Yeah, I mean, I think that was quite a moment in the Scottish Parliament. I mean, Fergus Ewing, for anyone who doesn't know, obviously a, a very senior SNP minister until fairly recently, I think last 2021, year. 2021, yeah. Sacked, sacked after the election. Yeah. But I, I think it's also fair to say that, I don't know, maybe I'm, Fergus Ewing's politics were always quite widely known and he was maybe like much more, well, substantially more to the right than... Nicola Sturgeon, for example. I mean, the SNP is quite like that. It's such a broad church that sometimes the thing that unites them is support for independence as opposed to a kind of political vision in terms of left or right. So, but it was still, it was still a big moment. You know, he stood up in the Scottish Parliament, he was questioning them, making very pointed points about the oil and gas sector and was applauded by the Conservative benches. So it was quite, quite a moment. And I think for those SNP politicians that have seats in the Northeast, this is a major issue for them. They really want... You know, if there is going to be a transition, they want it to happen quickly, but also not to lead to wide-scale job losses. And I think one of the points that they always make is that, you know, the skills that this sector has, the oil and gas sector, are the skills that much of the, the new green energy is going to need as well. So there are opportunities there, but it's just being able to maximise them. And I think if you're trying to do these things quickly, one of the worries is that people get left behind. And that's what exactly what you don't want to happen, considering we've seen before in Scotland and, and elsewhere in the UK, what happens when areas deindustrialize and there's not policies put in place to support people and to support those communities. And talking of uh, people being supported within communities, let's talk about uh, island communities briefly and uh, the ongoing ferries fiasco, um, which is is really, I mean, we spoke at length about it last week um, on the podcast, but, you know, we, there's, there's been a couple of updates since and it was a, it was a difficult um, day in 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 Holyrood on Thursday for for Nicola Sturgeon after FM during FMQs, um, struggling to answer some basic questions on on the ferries fiasco and, and getting attacked from 
from both flanks, from both the from both Labour and the Tories. But Derek Mackay, disgraced Derek Mackay, decided to speak to somebody and spoke to the Sunday Times at the weekend. Alistair, what did he say? It's going to be box office, but explain why. Yeah, so I mean, just to recap for people, Derek Mackay, Finance Secretary, resigned in February 2020 after it emerged in the press that he had kind of sent messages to a 16-year-old boy. Probably one of the most dramatic downfalls in the history of devolution, to be honest. It happened so fast. It was on the eve of the Scottish budget, which he was about to deliver. Kate Forbes then had to step in uh, and deliver her budget with just you know hours of preparation. Um, despite this, Derek Mackay clung on, actually, as an MSP until last year's holiday election. So he was still kind of raking in money, essentially. So it was a controversial move in his part. But he's not been heard from since until now. So he's basically kind of released a statement to the Sunday Times saying that he is willing to cooperate with a Hollywood inquiry into the ferries fiasco. So the Public Audit Committee is widely expected in the coming weeks to launch a Hollywood inquiry on the back of the recent Audit Scotland report, which kind of raised concerns about the lack of financial measures that were in place in the contract and the way the whole thing was done and the kind of the lack of documentation. There's just so many questions to answer. And I think the spark for Derek Mackay getting involved was obviously First Minister's questions a few weeks ago where Nicola Sturgeon appeared to blame him essentially or, or was accused of blaming him for the kind of mess we've got into at Ferguson Marine. So she made the point that you know the government operates under collective responsibility but she was also quite clear that the Transport Minister at the time that these contracts were signed was Derek Mackay. And I think this will be a tricky issue for the SNP because it's worth saying that while Derek Mackay resigned in disgrace, there's no doubt about that, he was, before that, a well-respected politician. He was seen as a capable, smart politician. He was respected across the chamber. He had a lot of goodwill in the chamber. Uh, he was quite reasonably popular with journalists, actually, as well. So he was a reasonably formidable figure. And I think if he's coming back to this committee and he's saying that he's going to tell his, or friends close to Derek Mackay are saying that he's going to tell his side of the story, I think the SNP We'll be worried about that. And I think from a journalist's point of view and from anyone who's you know keen on watching Hollywood developments, it will be quite a moment. It will be quite an unmissable moment, actually, if he comes before that committee. It'll be the first time he's set foot in Hollywood since he resigned. So, yeah, it's one to put in the diary. And I think as well, you know, you look at uh, the Public Audit Committee, and no offence to the five MSPs that sit on it normally, but often it is quite boring. It looks at, you know, in in it usually takes evidence from... Um, the Auditor General Stephen Boyle most weeks, um, and can be quite technically technical, you know, and and struggles to to make headlines. But it is also one of the few committees that is has a opposition majority, um, in the sense that it's it's the conveners Richard Leonard, the Deputy Conveners Sharon Dyer, he's a top Conservative MSP, uh, Craig Hoy, another Conservative MSP is on there, and then there's only two um, SNP. MSPs in Colin Beatty and Willie Coffey. This presents the opportunity for Richard Leonard, you know, the the deposed former leader of you know Scottish Labour, Labour, leading the party's charge against against the Scottish government in what will be, as you say, you know, quite the moment. Unlike other committees in the past, where you know often the SNP's majority on those committees have watered down, you know reports or suggest you know not not being as as critical as possible this could be the opportunity for for 
for committees and MSPs to really stick the boot in over what is a massive scandal. It's a huge opportunity. Like you say, the fact that the opposition have a majority just gives them an opportunity to be a complete thorn in the side of the Scottish government over this. And to be honest, you know, for anyone who wants scrutiny in the Scottish Parliament, you know, there's often criticism of the Holyrood committee system, which was kind of, when Holyrood was set up, was meant to be this powerful force that would mean that Holyrood didn't really need a second chamber as we have down south. But there's always been you know, a sense of disappointment at how that's how that's worked out. You know, committees haven't really provided that level of scrutiny that maybe people hoped. And I think on this issue, there is a huge opportunity to, yeah, really just cause the government a complete headache over this, which, to be honest, if you, yeah, if you want scrutiny, nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. And I think for Richard Leonard, you know, it's quite a funny moment for him in the sense that it's, it's funny how things work out. He's obviously, as you said, former Scottish Labour leader, and now has the opportunity to kind of lead the charge on this and to kind of, really gets teeth into it. Yeah, it will be it will be absolutely fascinating. And I think if Derek Mackay comes before it, if they start getting other ministers before it, yeah, big moment. Absolutely. We'll we'll look forward to it. We don't we haven't had confirmation that any of this will actually happen yet. Um the Public Audit Committee obviously have to announce a parliamentary inquiry, which seems almost guaranteed to 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 happen um, probably shortly after they return from from Easter recess on on, on April the 17th. After that, there'll be invitations to most likely Derek Mackay. I can imagine Keith Brown, who was the infrastructures minister at the time, will be called, and also uh, probably John Swinney, who was finance secretary at the time, and also Nicola Sturgeon will be will be called to give evidence. It will be fascinating if if and when it happens, and proper parliamentary drama, hopefully for 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 those of us with absolutely no vested interest in parliamentary drama, <laughs> but we'll we'll see how it goes. Just to let listeners at home know, uh, this is going to be the penultimate podcast that comes out on a Tuesday after Easter. We're going to shift the release time uh, of this podcast to a Friday evening. Um, I hope uh, you you'll you'll join us in welcoming that change, and it'll give us a chance to talk more about FMQs um, than we currently do. Um, Alistair, thank you very much for joining us. Alex, thank you very much for joining us as well. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. The Steamy, a laudable production for The Scotsman.